Hi, I'm Dr. Greg Goins from the Reimagined Schools podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, did you know that you can buy me a soft drink? That's right. By going to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, you can support Teaching Learning Leading K-12 by making a donation. And it's really cool. You got this little cool uh, soft drink cup right there. <laughs> that would be so awesome if you do that. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, and you can help support Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Thank you so much. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with N.L. Holmes. And you might remember her from back on episode 346, where we talked about historical writing. We talked about her Lord Hani mystery series, as well as the Empire Twilight series, where she's written all these books. Well, today she's got a new book, a new addition to uh, her Empire Twilight series, and it's called The Sun at Twilight. And that's what we're going to focus on. Oh, it's so cool. Lots of action, lots of intrigue. Awesome episode. You're going to love this story. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, could you go into your podcast platform and rate and review this episode and podcast? Well, what do you think? That would be so cool. Thank you so much. Enjoy. District leaders nationwide have confirmed that online learning is here to stay. As one in five districts are planning to adopt or have already adopted a fully online school. With the evolving landscape in the competitive field of education, you might be wondering what you can do to stand out. Well, I encourage you to look into National Virtual Teacher Association, or NVTA, to pursue a college-accredited program recognized by states across the country to certify educators in online education. Their certification empowers educators to provide the world-class virtual instruction that every student deserves. The average teacher needs one semester to complete the program, and it culminates in a digital portfolio that you may use in job interviews or even with your current administration to, you know, <laughs> negotiate a raise or promotion. Some of the topics to be covered in the certification include establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources. The NVTA certification process was created to establish a valid and reliable research-based teacher qualification training process for virtual teachers to enhance their teaching and develop their ongoing reflective skills to improve teaching capacity. NVTA certification is a challenging and meaningful process to support your personal and professional goals. NVTA is an affiliate partner for Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Click the link in the show notes or go to my webpage, stephenmaletto.com, find the NVTA logo and go to their website that way. And if you do that, if you buy something, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission and I greatly thank you for that. So go check them out. I think you'll be glad you did. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. N.L. Holmes is a prolific novelist embarking on another significant career phase. Prior to taking up the power of writing and using this pen name, she was an accomplished archaeologist and teacher for 25 years. Early in her career, she served as a nun for two decades. In between, she was an artist and antiques dealer. Yes, she has lived an interesting life, and the sum of her experiences informs and inspires her writings today. 
Holmes, who earned her doctorate in classical and Near Eastern archaeology studies from Bryn Mawr College despite an offer to attend Princeton, has excavated in Greece and Israel and taught ancient history and humanities at Stockton University in New Jersey and University of South Florida for many years. She also did archaeological artwork for excavations from Lebanon. With seven published novels, Holmes is the creator of the Lord Hani series. The inspiration for her Bronze Age novels came with an assignment she gave to her students one day. Here are the only documents we have telling us about royal divorce and Ugarit in the 13th century. How much can we say about what happened? She notes it quickly became apparent that almost anything we might come up with was as much fiction as historiography. She also penned the Empire at Twilight series, historical fiction set in the 13th century CB during the Hittite Empire. Born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, she attended the University of Texas in the Honors Program, but dropped out midway to enter into the antiques business. Two years later, she entered the Disc House Carmelite Covenant in Texas. She left the Covenant 20 years later and returned to school to get her B.A. in Classical Studies. Holmes resides with her husband, three cats, and a dog. They split their time between Tampa, Florida, and northern France, where she gardens, weaves, and plays the violin. They have an adult son. Today, we're focused on her latest addition to her Empire at Twilight series, The Sun at Twilight. N.L., great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hi. Thank you for having me, Steve. Well, it's great to have you back, and uh, um, I... And where I'd like to kind of start here is that I just want to remind everyone that you had different career paths, but the three of them were, the three main ones were nun, archaeologist, and ancient history professor. These all have a connection to peoples and life in the past. Uh, Could you talk about what interests you most about ancient times? I guess you could throw an antiques dealer in there too, actually. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I've, I've thought about this hard and Something happened when I was very small. I began to be interested in history. Maybe it was seeing the old sword and sandal epics of the 50s. I don't know, but there, as an adult, I now that I can articulate what I'm interested in, I'd say it was a sense of continuity, the, the human continuum, uh, to look back at any period you choose, no matter how long ago, 3,000 years, like these novels and find that despite the different worldviews or the different clothing, the different levels of technology, that these people are exactly like us. And they, they suffer the same things, they make the same mistakes. Um, it, it sort of puts you in perspective, I'd say. No, that's awesome. That's, uh, it, it really does. I mean, especially when you think that uh, going back in time, now there's certain you know, occupations or parts of society I wouldn't want to have been in, <laughs> but yeah, uh, <laughs> me either. <laughs> but at the same time, the, just the, 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 the fact that these were people interacting with each other, um, living their lives and, uh, and proceeding through their lives just always fascinates me too about history. It just, yeah, actually that's why I, I have chosen in this series, particularly to, to look at events from a wide range of social classes. So this sun at twilight is about a king, but other ones take up a, a singer, a, a charioteer, a, a slave. So just to remind myself and readers that, you know, there are other people back there too. Which is awesome. Because, uh, I, I think uh, sometimes we get so caught up in, uh, you know, because the, the kings and the rulers remade the boundaries and the, <laughs> and the you know, tend to be remembered more, but uh, being able to remember all different aspects of the society are pretty cool. So that's neat that you do that. The, uh, 
You know, in the historical notes section at the beginning of the Sun at Twilight, you note this. The late Bronze Age in Anatolia, which is modern Turkey, is still relatively mysterious, even after more than 100 years of Hittite studies. We cannot know how they actually behave, but one is struck by the humanity of their principles, especially in the brutal context of their neighbors. Could you put some context to this? Well, uh, it was a period, as were most periods in the past, where human life was pretty cheap. And punishments tended to take a, a corporeal form, uh, often execution or mutilation. That was a that was a fun one. <laughs> Cut off your nose or ears. Nice. But the Hittites were unusually uh, averse to that sort of thing. So in their law codes, such as we have them, most things were punishable by a fine, even murder. Um, if you get up towards treason and things like that, crimes against the king you'd be more likely to be put to death. But even there, we see a lot of exile going on rather than, than execution. And as I say, we don't know how, how closely they adhered to their own values, but even to hold that up as the ideal, I think, is attractive. Very much so. That's, uh, you know, especially like you said, for the, for the times, that's a, that's a big step in the right direction, the idea that not everything is about you know, mutilation and uh, um, death so uh, that there can be other punishments that might send the same message and let's move on with our world so pretty yeah. cool so the uh, also in the historical notes by, by the way you see the historian in me I couldn't get out of the historical notes section I'm <laughs> glad someone's reading them actually <laughs> I, I, I like to say this I you know when I was a as a kid especially in college I I, I always would kind of like if I got to read this I'm going to skip over the preface. I'm going to skip over any notes and all this sort of stuff. And then I started learning there's some cool stuff inside those things. Yeah. And, uh, and now I make sure I always read them from whatever book I'm reading. So, um, but also in the historical notes section of the Sun at Twilight, you have several comments like this. Even the most basic events of his reign are debated. And something like this, historians are divided. What makes it possible for evidence to be so unclear? Well, in the first place, there is very little evidence. I mean, um, we have documents, texts from their chanceries and things like this, uh, but mostly it's propaganda, royal propaganda. So how much do you believe it? You know, how, how whitewashed is it? Uh, and it tells us about relatively few things and nothing below a certain level of sort of, you know, grand importance. Um, plus some of, of what we see there and understand and we've, put together their language fairly well is ambivalent ambiguous i should say you for example of pudu hepa the the uh, queen mother in this this latest book it is said of her that she was uh, a woman of the birth stool so what does that mean you know it was she a midwife which a lot of people have have uh, believed or was she just a woman who had given birth to a lot of children so it's it's vague. And then on top of all of that, they don't date their documents, um, not even with an internal date, a regnal year like the Egyptians did. So when we see a, events uh, recorded, we're never sure which one came first, and, and therefore we don't know which one might have been causal. So, uh, you know, it leaves an awful lot open to the imagination. I've, I've chosen to pack quite a lot into the, the first five years of the protagonist, and it may well have been that fast, but we can't be sure. It, it's so wild to think that such an organized society would not uh, date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's wild. It, 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 a group that's talking about paying fines and so forth and so on would not. Uh, that's that's so that obviously lends itself to exactly why uh, it uh, creates the possibility for people to argue over what came first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's amazing. That's uh, but I appreciate that because that's that's something that I think uh, you know unless you really study history, a lot of people don't don't get. They just think well. We should know all this stuff, and this is how it was, exactly how we think it was, right? <laughs> Depends on who we are. We, we all think different things. That's the right. problem. <laughs> that's, what's, that's what's fascinating to me about yeah. some of this, is that it just depends on who we are. I like that answer. <laughs> um, before we go any further, uh, could you clarify what characteristics and capabilities signify the late Bronze Age? Well, of course, it's named. It was named in the 19th century by a Danish archaeologist, uh, according to techno metal technology. So you have the Copper Age, you have the Bronze Age, you have the Iron Age. Oh, so essentially, they made use of more bronze than anything else, although they had iron, meteoric iron. But it was a highly sophisticated period, and particularly the late Bronze Age, an age of great empires, an age of a very high degree of artisanship. Uh, the Hittites, like the Egyptians, were fabulous engineers. They, uh, their capital was just a marvel of engineering. Um, but politically, to characterize the age, it, it was very international, very, uh, very much a global village. Uh, there was constant communication between rulers and their wives and um, very elaborate posturing and sort of code of conduct. Um, they considered themselves brother kings, so there's like this old boy club of the brother kings, and uh, just everybody could be part of that club. You had to prove your chops. But then they could address one another as my brother, you know, my, or if he was older, my father. And therefore, if, if one of these people offended your country, you didn't have to go to war over it. You could say, oh, my brother has, you know, this, it's a personal sort of familial offense, which, and they were very eager not to go to war, one great power against another. Instead, they just pitted their vassals <laughs> against each other. But uh, it, it was a kind of Cold War for the most part when they, when they went to war. That's 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 pretty awesome to understand that because that's uh, uh, yeah just first of all I, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure that I said is that's why I wanted to talk about the what type of capabilities are going on in that age because that definitely lends itself if you manipulating metals um, like bronze and such to be able to create um, just any number of artif you know uh, tools utensils things that you need yeah. for manipulating uh, or building and constructing uh, as well as fighting <laughs> that too <laughs> yes um, so so let's talk about writing for a minute i got to ask this because you you've written numerous novels now and i i've been running into this more and more from people who there's an there's an ongoing argument about whether there's such a thing as writer's block uh, uh, do you think there is well yeah i I think there is, but I don't think it is what we assume it is very frequently. It's not like your imagination's just dried up. I think, and I'm going from my own experience now, um, I think it may be trying to force yourself to write in a way that is alien to you. Uh, we talk about you know, the plotters who want everything worked out on paper in advance and outlined, and the pantsers, those who fly by the seat of their pants and sort of develop the 
the plot as they go. And I myself am a pantser, but the first book I wrote, I tried to plot it in advance and I thought I would die. I would stare at a blank page and it's like, oh my God, I have no imagination. I I can't do this. But once I got into it and let myself follow the characters, to put it in a rather corny way, I found that was over. Now, it's true that you can hit a dry patch, but what I like to do is if I kind of can't think where to take the plot next and sequentially, I I just pick a scene that I want to happen at any point in the book and work on that. So I, I write scenes you know, just out of order and usually uh, highly dramatic confrontations, things like that, which are more fun to write. And then later I come back and stitch them together. And in fact, if you get enough of those scenes, it becomes a kind of outline. And you have to go from point A to point B. That's that's cool because it, it's uh, it makes a lot of sense to just be – first of all, i got to go back to what you're talking about, the idea that you're just kind of like uh, – uh, Okay. <laughs> now, here's this sheet of paper. What do I do? <laughs> right. And uh, and then the idea that uh, um, you know just to to kind of you know focus on what it is that you're excited about and maybe that that stitching those together. I like to use your word. I think that's uh, that's pretty cool. So um, neat stuff because you've definitely written enough that it, it has to feel like there's a you have a way of dealing with any of that if it t- pops up into your. Well, of course, I have the luxury, too, of of basing everything on real historical events. So that kind of gives you, you know, at least some plot points in advance. And I don't have to develop a story from total scratch. So I I have to say that probably makes it easier. That's cool. It probably probably does because it gives you some some idea. Here's the scene or here's the... Here, here, here's the people, or here's something that I can make happen because this is part yes, of the real, exactly. real world at the time. Yeah, cool. Uh, so I got to say, because you already mentioned the blank page. I mean, when you start writing, do you start with a blank page, or do you explain the scene and setting, or kind of talk about some major event and then let it flow from there? Well, originally, before I ever come to the text itself, I, um, I think about the characters. That's that's where I start. And as I say, since I've got a a historical event in my mind someplace. I look at those characters and, and look at other things that tell us what they've done, how they seem to face life. And then I begin developing, okay, what sort of person would do these things? And uh, what hints of personality do we get, which are few, but, but then I develop them in my own mind. And then I, from there, I start thinking about what's going to happen. So you know, before I ever come to the page, I have a vague idea, just a few notes, either handwritten or on a typed, of the vague idea, and then I certainly don't plot it out in advance, even the mysteries. So it's it's kind of um, winging it, as one might say. That's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> and, and it works for you, so it's good. Well, it worked, but I don't you know. I could run out of luck at some point. I actually have to do some effort here. That's 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 neat. I, I appreciate you sharing that. So I, I, I just had to ask because it's like this is cool because now I've, I've read several of your books. And uh, and so it's neat to see how it all comes to get how, how you start and uh, go about uh, approaching it and writing. Um, very awesome. The uh 
know, the opening of the sun at twilight finds a new ruler ascending to the throne as his father has died, and the son is really what this, realizing what this means to him. Could you explain, let's, let's talk about a couple of things, kind of how these transitions historically took place like this, um, because in this case, uh, you know, he's, it's happening peacefully. He's transitioning into his role, and it's kind of cool because he's kind of needing to be left to himself while he deals with, you know, kind of the wow factor of what his, who he is now. Well, that was that was a uh, peaceful transition, but I'll tell you the the internal history of the Hittites is not especially peaceful. <laughs> um, they were not quick to go to war on the external, but civil war is just unbelievable. I mean, so many generations saw violent takeovers of the throne, um, either from, and and generally from relatives. I mean the. The entire government of the Hittite Empire was pretty much the royal family. I mean, they, they, the entire diplomatic corps. I mean, there were exceptions, I'm sure, but um, the generals they they really populated their government, and therefore, you know, many people probably thought they had a claim on the throne. So it, you probably had to watch your back at family get-togethers, is the way I look at it. Uh, many many transitions were violent. In That's, fact, the father, which this plays into the the um, plot of this book a lot, the father of Tutalia, the new king, had usurped the throne from his his nephew in the sort of Richard the Third move. Um, so you know, if you got onto the throne peacefully, you were lucky. I was going to say because that that plays a big part in what's you know talking about watching your back. Obviously, yeah. this character now has to completely watch his back from from. Family members, <laughs> so right. very nice. So uh, that's interesting to know, though, that that played a huge part in uh, just the. I, and I can imagine that no, it should be my turn to be the king or whatever. Yeah. Type, type thought. Um, yeah. You know, could you talk about the role? There's a there's a character that you've created that's part of the the storyline that's called Tawanana. <laughs> well, yes, her name is Puduhepa. And uh, she was a real historical figure. In fact, one of the best documented and most powerful women in the ancient world. I mean, a truly fascinating person. She lived for 90 years and served as the Tawanana for four different kings. So, I mean, she was a power to be reckoned with. Uh, generally speaking, the Tawanana was more than just the king's wife. Uh, she actually held office independent of her husband. So that, like Puduhepa, she might continue in office after he dies and, in, and until her own death. So there would be generations where the king's wife never had a crack at this office. And it was, a, it was a, both a political or diplomatic uh, role and a religious role. Uh, Puduhepa wrote to the kings abroad, you know, made policy, wrote to their wives and kind of got an old girls club going there and attempting to influence the husbands. Uh, she, of course, we can't be sure how many things happened that were hers, but she was very powerful and um, started this great religious reform where they were sort of resolving differences among the, the gods of their vassals and their own. Uh, originally, some people think that back long before the Hittites became an empire, that the power actually moved from the king to the brother of his wife. And you know, therefore rocked back and forth between two different families. And so the, the uh, 
Kawanana would have been a, a bridge figure, a person who's sort of carried empire in her bones, you know, um, so that you had to, to marry her to have a, a chance at the throne. It's, we don't know that was true, but it's something some people have proposed. Gotcha. Because, I mean, it, and you have this char- this historical type character in your uh, uh, in your story, and it's one of the characters that's a, you know, the real person from the past, or at least the, yeah. the name. And that's that's awesome, the, the power and such, because that's one of the differences that you kind of point out about the Hittites, I think, is that the, the role that women play um, or have. Can you t- kind of talk about that just a, a little bit? Sure. We don't. And we don't know how much role they played in everyday life, whereas we do know a lot about Egypt. Um, But certainly, if you have women rulers and active rulers, not just figureheads, there probably was some trickle-down. I mean, we know they had very powerful priestesses, for example. Um, Could they run businesses and things like Egyptian women? We don't know, but it's I don't think it's off the charts to, to imagine that. So our problem with the Hittites is we we have only studied very deeply the, the upper echelons of society. So we know a fair bit about, you know, kings and queens and priests and priestesses, but we don't know so much about everyday life. Uh, therefore, my answer is vague. <laughs> they had a lot of power at the top, but we don't know how far down that trickled. Gotcha. So, so I got to ask is, you know, one of the things that you're talking about is, that, you know, the kind of the vagueness, uh, some of the, uh, the, lapses in what we know and so forth. Is any of that impacted by, you know, uh, political uh, issues today? And what I mean by that is in the areas where you'd have to study this. I mean, can you talk about what impacts the the ability to do the research? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, most of their heartland is in, uh, in Turkey, which is still open to excavations. But a lot of their their holdings, their vassal states, were in Syria and and Kurdistan, and you can imagine how easy it is to get to those. So, to some extent, things have ground to a halt in terms of on the ground archaeology. But there are lots of texts that have been brought up, and people are are constantly working on those, interpreting them, finding out little by little much more about how their religion worked, how their government worked. So, so it, things have not stopped, but they have been slowed down. Gotcha. The uh, it, it, you know one of the things that uh, um, has to make that uh, adds its own mystery to it. I would think also is as you're uncovering or attempting to or hoping that you can get through whatever red tape might be set up by dealing with the different political boundaries today. Um, but because one of the one of the nationalities that plays a role in your story are the Assyrians, right? Right, the Assyrians uh, who were in the northern part of what is to what was Mesopotamia, so um, northern Iraq and into the Kurdish uh, areas to some extent. They were just rising at this at this point. Uh, they had existed for a long time, but they had not. They'd been traders and and had had a really early contact with the the Hittites uh, through these trading posts. They were both great traders, but then they had been conquered and by the Hittites and they came back roaring mad sort of saying no more Mr. Nice Guy you know you've you've kicked sand in my face (laughs) too long so they came back very aggressive and this is the period we call the middle Assyrian period and uh, they tried to get into the old boys club of the great kings and were rebuffed and that was a huge you know slap in the face and so that 
kind of set them even more against the Hittites. Um, this is the 13th century when this book uh, takes place. is kind of the beginning of that confrontation in a, in a really hostile way. Gotcha. And it, and, 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 it, and, and throughout your book, I mean, that's one of the things that's, that's noted, that there's this <laughs> kind of... Um, the Assyrians are out there on their way, or there's, it's going to be at some point. There's going to be some interaction with them, and uh, um, I appreciate you sharing about the that that uh, relationship between those peoples. So good stuff. The uh, you know one of the things that I wanted to make sure, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but can we talk go back to you know how real was it that war played as a constant possibility in establishing who should be the ruler? I mean, how much was war even with family members a part of their life? Well, I, I think civil war was a big part of their lives, and, and how much the ordinary people were drawn into this, we can't be sure, but certainly armies were. Uh, I'm sure there were assassinations right and left and uh, jockeying for power. They, part of this code of honor they had said, you know, we don't want to go to war unless it's necessary. Their king is never depicted as a warlord, although he was one, uh, but always as a priest. And there was the fiction, at least, that you don't go to war unless you're forced to. But that only seems to apply to external wars. Um, they, they satisfied their their lust for violence against their family members to some extent. I think it was a big part of their lives. And fear of, of uh, being attacked. In fact, the one thing that we seem to know about Tudhalia, who's the protagonist in this book, from a real man, I mean, is A, that he was pious, and B, that he was paranoid. But you have to think he probably had good reason to feel uneasy, you know? Very much so. It's, you've got to worry about your family members uh, more than uh, you've got to worry about outside. What, what, yeah. do you, what do you think kind of drove the um, that idea, though, that uh, the external wars, trying to figure out how to n- keep that from happening? I mean, was that through trade, do you think? I mean, it was that... Uh, well, I, I think for for sure it had to do with the fact that trade was so important. I mean, uh, the, for the Hittites in particular, their homeland was very rocky, and uh, it's, it's on the highlands just south of the Black Sea, not good agricultural land. They had a lot of mines, but um, for food, they often had to look outside their own borders and for luxuries of various kinds. So they were part of this extremely elaborate and long-distance trading network of the late Bronze Age, and nobody wanted to mess that up. In fact, that's what brought the Bronze Age to a stop, is when there was such political upheaval that the trade routes were cut, and they could not get the tin that they needed to make bronze, so they, they had to use iron, which is local but takes much more technology to work. Gotcha. The, uh, that, and that's that's actually quite fascinating because if, if your own interactions then destroy your ability to um, to do what you've been doing for a long time um, yeah, it's pretty to sad. survive right that's that's crazy um, well first of all I got I gotta make sure I say this your characters are awesome um, they I enjoy reading them as as you start you find yourself uh, um, for lack of a better word, I know it's going to sound dorky, but rooting <laughs> for, uh, you know, you got the feel good part and you got the, okay, 
you know, if we were in a hiss and boo part. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say that, you know, boo, hiss, fat guy's on the scene and, you know, that type of thing. And and I thought that was cool that I really, you start feeling this kind of, uh, you've created characters that make you feel those emotions. And so I wanted to tell you kudos on that. And that, that's, it's neat all the way to the end. So there's, uh, and it's it's really cool because you've, there's some things that happen throughout the book that uh, you, you kind of lend itself back to what we what you've shared with us about their society and so forth which is kind of cool the the idea of uh, um, potential for mercy as opposed to uh, you know hacking <laughs> think parts off and so forth and yeah. things like this which is cool the uh, um, do, do you have another one coming in this series uh, I have one well actually I have two in progress but um, I'm kind of slow working on them these days one will follow the daughter of Tutalia, the protagonist here. She was the 13-year-old girl in this book. Uh, she marries a king of Ugarit in Syria, and um, and then herself is put away at a certain point, uh, divorced. So that seems to and say there's a story there. And then another one I was uh, had just started working on that takes place in the reign of Tutalia's second son, who is the last king of the Hittite Empire. And I was going to try to bring in some other um, other classes of people, traveling actors and, and things like that, uh, acrobats. They were very fond of these people. So that um, and just sort of bring things to a conclusion, show the upheaval and the human dislocation and everything at the end of this cataclysmic uh, fall of empire. That's awesome. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it very much. So, uh, you know, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them? Well, my website would be one place, uh, www.nlholmes.com, or I also have Facebook, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, <laughs> all of those things, and my handle is nlholmesbooks. Excellent, and I'll have those in my show notes, and I got uh, two last questions, and one, one goes like this. Uh, um, could you talk about the time you spent in researching to develop the story? I mean, would... It, that's what's cool. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's something I really love to do, obviously. And and I guess uh, writing novels was just an excuse to keep doing it after <laughs> nice, <laughs> I nice. left teaching. I, I started out, of course, with a certain amount of professional knowledge, basic, basic knowledge. But then as I began each series, I would do a lot, um, maybe a year or more of uh deeper research and more specific areas and things to get a grip of their, their culture, a feel for it. And, and then I would start writing the series. But of course, once you get to the second and the third, the fourth books, you don't have to repeat all of that. Uh, then you just look up things that are more specific to say a, a certain, uh, certain class or a certain walk of life or a certain geographical area. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's very cool. And it's, and I got to tell you, that's one of the things that's really cool about talking with you is that you have this, this whole background in the, in, you know, the studies of uh, antiquities and in the past. And I mean, you're from your doctorate to all the, I'm actually working in the dig sites and such. So it, I, I just feel like it comes through as opposed to someone who's decided to, to take up, I think I'll, I have an interest in history. I think I'll write a, <laughs> a historical fiction novel. And I just, there's so much more that you see reflected in uh, uh, your understanding of the peoples and such, which makes it so real. I think I really do. So uh, the last question, the last question I want to ask you, uh, you know, is uh, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to write their first historical novel? Well, 
I would say, of course, research, and I mean lots of research, because I have read some books that were obviously well-researched, but there were things they didn't quite understand, and so they came across as being inauthentic. Um, you know, research until you get a feel for the culture and understand their links with other cultures of the times. Of course, that historical fiction can now be the 1970s. So <laughs> true, very <take> true. This, uh, <laughs> proportionately. You know. uh, and then, of, of course, you have to make it a good book in addition to being a well-researched book. You, you don't want to glut your audience with historicity. And I, you know, I'm very conscious of that and never know if I'm succeeding or not. Uh, you don't want to be cramming you know, facts down their throat to make them aware of how well-versed you are in all this stuff. You, you want it to be a good, engrossing book. So it's, it's a balancing act. And uh, certainly to any writer starting out, I would say, have other people read plots. They can certainly improve your wording so that it sounds familiar, uh, professional, and get other people to read it as beta readers to give you kind of a reader's perspective on it. Uh, how certain things strike people it's it's in, invaluable that's awesome that's great advice and uh, and just as a, a a side note i have to say that uh, you definitely do not pack all this backstory and stuff in there that makes someone go when's something gonna happen <laughs> yeah oh well good <laughs> and which is cool though because i've read those books i've I, I yeah, the history, you, know, you, you start going wow people okay at some point there's got to be uh, something <laughs> and and you do not do that you get uh, that's why i thought it was so cool in your you know historical notes you kind of point out a few things and you know like one of the things i didn't touch on was that there's some where you mentioned about some changing in their their religious um that it was kind of intricate and you had to kind of narrow it down a little bit to, for the sake of the story, yeah. but it's, it, none of it is, you, never do I, do I feel that you've got so much that it's overwhelming and stuff like this. And it just makes it possible. There's just enough there to let you go with it and run with it. And you feel like these are, you're, you're sitting there with these people as a fly on the wall as they're experiencing their world. So kudos. Oh, good, good, good. The, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, as, as we finish up here, uh, that I do have to point out is that, uh, it's, it, it does make you want to, I can't, that's why I asked. I can't, I'm looking forward to your next, the, the next stories in, the, in this line. Good, good stuff. So, you know, congratulations on the sun at twilight. The story is engaging and a true page turner. As a lover of history, I was engrossed in the possibility that this was an oh so real telling of events in history. I mean, it's just, you got me sucked right in there, which is cool. So um, you're, your writing makes me, it makes you feel support for some and not for others. <laughs> I wanted to know what happened next all the way to the end. It was so awesome talking to you again. Well, thanks. I appreciate your having me. It's always fun to talk about history. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> Opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.